Thank you for listening to Podcast West Seattle, and welcome to our 50th episode. Today, we will be taking a look back at some of Podcast West Seattle's greatest hits over the last few years. I like the crust better on pizza number two. We will focus on five of the best stories to run on the podcast so far. And I fell in love with West Seattle. Highlights from the early episodes. I really appreciate this farmer's market. It's nice to come to a market that's year-round. We can buy most of our groceries. Pandemic diaries. We, we would be silly to deny the fact that music is a very healing thing. And a story from earlier this year. Like, oh. Are all coming up on Podcast West Seattle. Before we get into the highlights, a few orders of business. First, if this is your first time listening to Podcast West Seattle, welcome. This episode will be a great starting point. So far, Podcast West Seattle has dropped over 12 hours of ad-free, audio-rich stories about West Seattle. If you're a repeat listener, thank you so much. You are what has made the past 49 episodes worth doing. I love learning about our wonderful neighborhood, but it's so much more fun to share it with you. And the best way you could help me and Podcast West Seattle out is to tell your podcast listening friends about us. If you like something you hear on today's episode, share it with someone else. Now, let's get to the stories. Our first stop will actually be a combination of stories that panned a few episodes. The concept was a food tournament to unscientifically decide the best pizza in West Seattle. I would get two slices of the same toppinged pizza from two different West Seattle pizza places and record someone tasting both of them and deciding. This North Region matchup is an Alki pizza battle as Pegasus takes on Christos. Pegasus Pizza, located at 2770 Alki Avenue. Great pizza, great pasta, great beach. Christos Pizza, also located on Alki Avenue at 2508. Christos on Alki, where Papa Fotopoulos is making it fresh daily. Now let's meet our judge. I'm Justine. I've been living in West Seattle for four and a half years. I probably eat Zeke's pizza the most. Got sausage and green pepper and olives. Okay, here's pizza number one. Pizza one is Pegasus. It's delicious. The crust is um, kind of spongy and familiar tasting. The sausage, it's not spicy, which I like. And the dough on top kind of has like a creamy texture. Pizza number two. Pizza two is crystals. The dough on this one's a little bit thinner, not quite as, as spongy. I like the crust better on pizza number two. So I'm gonna go with pizza number two. Christos wins matchup one. Those are two phenomenal pizza places down on Alki. But today the winner is Christos. The whole process was so much fun that a year later I did the same thing with West Seattle Coffee. In the North region, it's Ampersand versus Freshies. Ampersand Cafe is located at 2536 Alki Avenue. They've been open since 2014 and they brew seven roasters beans. Ampersand Cafe on Alki, Hawaiian coffee, breakfast, lunch, drinks, and views. Freshies is located right across the street from the Hiawatha Playfield at 2735 California Avenue. They've been open since 2005. They use Victrola Roasters. Freshies, part cafe, part living room. Let's meet our judge. Um, my name is Betsy, and I've lived in West Seattle for 18 years now. I have to admit Starbucks. So I'm trying the coffee number one. Coffee one is Ampersand. This isn't bad. It tastes fancy. Okay, coffee number two. Coffee two is Freshies. Both of these are a little bit more acidic than what I usually go for. Hmm. It's a little bit more uh, like a rounded flavor, multiple flavors. I like that one better. And Freshies wins. 
It's tough to see show favorite Ampersand eliminated, but you can hear more about their backstory on Episode 5 of Podcast West Seattle. While certainly not definitive, it was pretty easy to justify the last two in the pizza tournament. We've narrowed the field all the way from 16 West Seattle pizza places down to two. It's Pizzeria Credo versus Sopranos. Chef Jacques from Credo and Chef Nick from Sopranos were both nice enough to provide three Chef's Choice pizzas for the final matchup, and Beverage Place Pub was nice enough to provide a venue. Because that plays into it. The, the spiciness is great. <laughs> Which pizza are you on? I'm on this first one. Pizza one yeah. is Credo. It's not too overpowering. Nice enough to enjoy. That little tingling sensation. <laughs> Overall mouthfeel. <laughs> Positive. You find your There's not a huge gap in between how much better two was than one. Pizza two is so great. It's not like two was so much better than one. Two was a little bit better. Sopranos and Pizzeria Credo continue to serve impressive West Seattle pies. Similarly, the finals of the coffee tournament seemed appropriate. It's time to finish up the West Seattle Coffee Tournament and declare a coffee champion. For the final round, I was lucky enough to get an entire crew of expert coffee drinkers to taste and decide. Good morning, Arbor Heights staff. Want you to know that we I visited the staff of Arbor Heights Elementary School one Friday morning before school. The owners of both CNP and Freshies were nice enough to donate drip coffee for the teachers and staff, and we had a tasting party. I think coffee one, Andrew. Oh, yeah? Coffee one is CNP. I think coffee one's a little more smooth, and you know, the other one's a little stronger. Good morning. We have some strong opinions about coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going with two. Coffee two is Freshies. Do you have a comment on why two is the winner? I don't know, it tastes smoother to me. And one, it has more, a little bit more of a bitter taste. Find the pizza tournament and coffee tournament episodes in the show notes to hear the thrilling conclusion of those two competitions. And of course, there has been some turnover in both the coffee and pizza fields in West Seattle since these episodes aired. It would be particularly interesting to see how Moto's Detroit-style pizza would fare in a new version of the pizza tournament. Perhaps we'll see sometime in the next 50 episodes of Podcast West Seattle. Our next stop also spanned multiple episodes. A few years ago, iconic West Seattle business Easy Street Records was celebrating their 30th year. Store owner Matt Vaughn was nice enough to sit down and reminisce with me. Here are a couple of the many great stories he told. You know, I was just a record store junkie. I was going to the Cellophane Square and Peaches and Fallout. And there was a store out here, Penny Lane, I ended up getting a job at when my folks, my family moved from Capitol Hill to West Seattle my sophomore year in high school. And so I started working at that shop. That was, it's right next to West 5 where the, next to the hobby shop used to be. Uh, and uh, I just really enjoyed working at the shop. Ended up working at another store as well uh, at the same time. So if I wasn't working at a shop, I was going to them. And it really kind of was a dream to own, a, own my own record store. Uh, it was a dream that came true sooner rather than later. Well, that's one reason why I don't have a date on when the store opened, right. because the changeover, how that happened when uh, Willie, who was kind of my mentor, the guy that owned Penny Lane, when he threw me the keys, I don't remember when that was. And I was a freshman <laughs> at Seattle University, 
and then I was a sophomore. So it was around that time, and I had a high school buddy that would work for me when I couldn't do it. I, I thought that I was only going to do it for a little while and go back to school. You know, it was still crickets in the neighborhood, uh, and there, you know, every other every other storefront. People don't believe this now, because I mean, but every other storefront was vacant. It was tumbleweeds coming through the junction. You know, at that time, I would be often the only employee working, and I would yell my order down to Jack or one of his kids down at Husky Deli. I would yell it from the corner to the deli because I couldn't leave the shop. I was the only person. And, so, and then they would walk it over. Uh, and if you look at the menu there, it's, there's, uh, there's an item called Matt's Special. Uh, after I was starting to do a little, doing, doing all right with the shop, I started doing some tour management and band management and booking shows. Easy Street Records is so synonymous with local music, it's almost hard to imagine that it was a choice Matt had to make. It was an easy choice as an audiophile who'd gotten involved with managing a couple of bands. And so the first tour I went on was the Alice in Chains tour. I, in particular, was man band managing a band called Grunt Truck. We all just became part of that Alice in Chains crew. Well, they started as club shows, right. uh, and then they became uh, arena shows. It all happened within seven weeks, uh, and I wish I was keeping a diary at the time, but I remember that I said to Alice in Chains manager, you know, why is it that you have a bodyguard? You know, the band's not that big yet. And she was like, well, we're just preparing because it's happening and uh, we also want to keep playing in check uh, but when it when the big change happened was when we get through the seven weeks throughout the whole US of course it ends in Seattle oversold to the point where we had to add a second key arena show that's when we knew okay this is it's on uh, but for me it uh, it wasn't my lifestyle and I knew that after the, the second tour and then we were going to, to do Europe grunt truck opening for Pantera and I was like I, I don't want to do it you know as, as glamorous as that might seem you know there was a darkness to the, of the to the Seattle scene yeah. and the Seattle lifestyle and that kind of got to me a little bit I just sensed some, some of that darkness and I'm you know, born and raised here in Seattle, I was missing home. I was still, you know, very close to my parents, my sister, my friends, and it just wasn't my lifestyle, especially because I kind of took my job seriously, and I realized, okay, well, touring isn't what I want to do. Band management isn't necessarily what I want to do. And I fell in love with West Seattle. Thank you, Matt. Easy Street continues to be one of the most visible and beloved businesses in West Seattle. You should go there and buy some records and food. Our third stop is one of the most popular regular events in West Seattle, the robust and vibrant West Seattle Farmer's Market. One December, I followed the market manager around to find out everything that goes into making the market happen. It's early in the morning, well before dawn. We are on one of West Seattle's busiest streets nearly deserted at this hour. But someone is out on the street, crouched over on the pavement, 
drawing with chalk. Um, we also have, it hasn't really rained, I guess, so we have all of the old markings. That's Jonica Strongman. She's the market manager of the West Seattle Farmers Market. I spoke to her to find out what it's like behind the scenes. Um, a lot of people kind of think that the market kind of springs into life um, on its own and that it's just kind of a collection of people that get together and they're like, hey, we're going to take over this parking lot or this street. And there is just an immense amount of um, planning and coordinating that goes into that. Most of that planning goes on from Wednesday to Saturday. Take a look at the schedule. And then I create a layout. Uh, we restock all of our supplies and together, all the like physical things that we need for the coming market. I also wanted to capture an audio version of what it's like to be at the West Seattle Farmer's Market. Buskers sign up at the manager's table. Customers eagerly await 10 o'clock. And then it starts. Fresh veggies, some meat, breakfast sandwich in the summer usually. Even though I should be eating it in the winter. Does she get to come every week? Thanks to Jonica Strongman and the West Seattle Farmers Market for being so accommodating that day. Stop number four on our five-story tour comes from the height of the 2020 quarantine. I got local legend and West Seattle busker Ruby Tuesday Romero to tell us what it was like to perform in public spaces during the most locked-down part of the pandemic. I did see less and less people coming out, a lot more crossing the street if you were out walking around. This was my first attempt at putting together a complicated story without leaving the house, and Ruby was amazing. Here are some of the highlights from her story. <laughs> um, it was 
intense. Yeah, it was like overnight, just completely different place. Zombie apocalypse. They said, all right, stay at home. Because I did take a solid week off before deciding to go back out. I'm still going out because not only do I kind of, you know, live day to day by the cash, but also because uh, seeing stories in Italy of, of, you know, neighbors coming out to their balconies and singing and things like that. And I mean, we, we would be silly to, to deny the fact that music is a very healing thing. Um, it also kind of brought a sense of normalcy to my life personally, still going out. Um, even though it like broke my heart to see no one out. I did like change my sign that I usually have out that says still gotta eat. You know, that's like how I've interpreted me still playing music is, you know, I still gotta eat. So I just put that six feet away from me and it's still like six feet away is like, nobody's looking at you. You know, nobody, everybody wants to avoid looking at you because they might get sick, you know, or, or get you sick or whatever, get arrested or whatever it is that people think. When I started to go back out after the stay at home, you know, after that week that I took off, day seven or day six after stay at home was probably the day that it was like pouring down rain and there was just no chance of like being heard because there was just nowhere to stand that was covered. So that day was like where I was playing, you know, the saddest songs that I knew, crying. I'll admit it, I was crying, you know, and like it felt like tragic to be a like just to be around like you know usually playing music makes me feel better this did not make me feel better maybe i'll catch up something warm to hold me it was like tough to see no one at all <laughs> just felt like what am I doing out here you know like this is just stupid and I'm thinking you know because I already battle with anxiety as it is right so I was like amplified anxiety because I'm playing to myself I've seen people do the crossing the street they'll look at me like kind of like what are you doing out here you know what I mean like 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 almost angry at me there will be people that will come up and 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 put you know, cash in my box or what have you. And, and, and they will like, not even want to like look at me <laughs> and they'll just walk away and, and I'll say thank you. And they don't say anything back and that's okay. You know, it's odd. It's very odd. There was a, um, there was a woman who that came and picked up her food and said, you know, like, I'm really glad to see you here because it feels like there's something normal. That made me feel like super like, oh man, okay, we're all starting to like want normalcy and feel positive about seeing each other, right? Because we're not avoiding this contact. She was willing to say that, you know? Thanks again to Ruby for that. Our last stop in our tour of the top five episodes is from earlier this year. I wanted to capture the magic that is the West Seattle baseball peewee fields at Riverview Playfield. Here's how the story started. If you were just driving by in the neighborhood, you would never know that those fields are down there. 
On a quiet stretch of road between Highland Park and Puget Ridge sits Riverview Playfield. You have to go there with a purpose almost, you know? It is a seemingly simple flat stretch of baseball fields and tennis courts with a small parking lot and playground in the middle. It's like the first time we went, our Google directions got us all lost and we're wandering around the Riverview fields up top going like, these don't look like (laughs) five-year-olds. Where, where do we go? But a closer look reveals a gravel path leading down a hill with a sign that reads, West Seattle Baseball Pee Wee Fields. Well, I first described going down the big gravel hill. If you happen down that path on a game day, you'll find it lined with parked cars and families walking up and down. Someone said, no, you gotta keep keep going, and then you drive down. And as you turn the corner. And your first view of all four fields. Then the four fields are sitting right there. And what really stands out is the yellow fences. It's like, Peewee fields sit nestled on an unlikely plateau on the edge of the West Duwamish Greenbelt. The fields were built in 1974 through an agreement with the city, West Seattle Peewee Baseball Association, and a whole lot of volunteer work from parents. At the time, they were the only fields in the area designated specifically for the 5 to 10 year old age group. The miniature complex of four fields is surrounded by a steep ridge up to the rest of the park on one side and a steep ravine down into the West Duwamish Greenbelt on the other. When the trees are in full bloom in the summer, it gives the fields a truly unique and isolated feel. Yeah, it's a magical place, and you would never expect it to be there. I spoke with some parents during an end-of-season tournament game to get a better sense of the community that emerges around these fields. See, Andrew, it takes a village. <laughs> That's Steph Husky. Yes, um, we're here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays for this level. Um, and then my older son plays Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. <laughs> and then we have soccer on Sundays. Sure, I'm Stacy Canole, and I have two kids on the Pavar team. And I'm married to the assistant coach, and I do a lot of the scorekeeping. I tell you how much I love all these little kids. There's a ton of kindergartners who are the younger siblings. They all just run around and chase each other and play the whole game. And it's just so wonderful. And kids will ask to come down even when they don't have to because they can stay home with a grandparent. Kids will bring neighbors down to come play who don't even have a sibling playing. It's probably just a snack shack, but I'd like to think it's because they're going to see their other friends. Are there something about um, like that little peewee area is so controlled? Like there are, you know, you can go further down that path or you can go up the hill, but generally the kids don't. They know to stay within the field area and then everybody seems to have their eyes, whether they know the kids or not, of like, hey, buddy, don't climb on the hill, you know, or like, hey, where's your grown-up? <laughs> don't go down that scary path. That's <laughs> you know? great. It's also Thanks to everyone with West Seattle Baseball who talked to me for that story. That wraps up our tour of the five greatest hits from the first 49 episodes of Podcast West Seattle. But before this episode is over, I wanted to include one bonus clip. It comes from the very first episode of Podcast West Seattle. Hello. In the episode, I interview Lou Mager at Kenyon Hall. Lou passed away in April at age 75. I will always remember Lou as the first guest I had on a podcast, and he was a total delight. His happy personality, 
great stories, and that infectious laugh all worked so well on a podcast. There was one fellow who came in and looked around. He said, my gosh, I haven't been in here since 1931. (laughs) He was still dancing. After his death, the outpouring of stories made it clear that Lou was like that with just about everyone he interacted with. And so I end episode 50 of Podcast West Seattle with the voice that started it off on episode one. Thanks, Lou. We did have, I don't know whether you knew this, we did have a, a show here once that Eddie Vedder did. He came in one afternoon, I was here, and he said, Hi, I'm Ed from the neighborhood. Then I saw his eyes and I thought, uh-oh, those are beautiful eyes. Where have I seen those? And then I thought, oh, wait, I know who this is. Because I, I know Matt Cameron. He said, I'm a friend of Matt's. And I thought, all right. He wanted to do it. He did a solo concert. And he did it in Vancouver, L.A., and San Francisco, but not in Seattle. And he wanted to try it out. So he used Kenyon Hall as a tryout. And there was a whole secretive way of getting tickets that through Easy Street Records. It was wonderful. You had to have purchased Into the Wild from Easy Street online within the last month. Then they sent an email to those people and said, hey, we're going to do a special showing of Into the Wild, and it's going to be on Monday. If you'd like to go, come to Easy Street between 6 and 6.30. Be prepared to pay cash. It's $5, and we'll tell you where it is. So already the people are going like, wait, 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 wait. So uh, you went there. They gave you the address. Everybody showed up, filled the place. And um, all sorts of people were here that were friends of Matt's from Easy Street, you know, like Jack Miller from Husky Deli. He was here. You know, he told some people. And I told some people, but I made them buy the record. So (laughs) uh, they had the screen down, and they started a movie, some awful old movie. And then Matt came out and said, no, that's not it. And then the next night, of course, people found out about it because the next day it was in Billboard. That day, they had probably 100 people outside who wanted to get in, and they let them in. Just packed average people all over. It was just another one of those moments that I mentioned, you know, that just happened. And it was great. It felt really good. But also, Eddie's a real West Seattle guy. So it felt very West Seattle-like. <laughs>